By the way, I, uh, so my birthday is coming up and someone gave me an early birthday gift. What day is your birthday? Uh, this coming Sunday. Everyone get Chris something. <laughs> Not to divert too much, but did, did it suck growing up having your birthday so close to Christmas? No, it was actually kind of great because here was the thing is that it's far enough away that it still got its own celebration. Yeah. And right around, you know, when you're a kid and like, they're like, make your Christmas list and figure out what you want for Christmas and that type of thing. And then you start imagining like, oh, it's going to be so good to get that new stuff on Christmas. Right around when you start to get kind of like excited and itchy about getting a new, right. some new stuff, you would get at least one new thing. Yeah. And so that would like take me through the next three weeks until Christmas right, came right. when I got some new stuff. Okay. It was, so it was like kinda, you, it was, you got like a you got like a Christmas appetizer. Yeah, it was. It was. It was like a Christmas appetizer. It was kind of perfect. Um, so we've talked about, uh, we've talked on this this show about my ability and my uh, habit of performing an Irish goodbye. <laughs> I literally was just telling someone about your Irish goodbyes the other day, like maybe yesterday. Yes. So I'm very well known for for performing an, an Irish goodbye in, in nearly any social I, I, for setting. For everyone who doesn't know and, and and doesn't feel like going to UrbanDictionary.com, an Irish goodbye is where you just sort of peace out of a party without saying anything to anyone, and no one notices for like 45 yeah. minutes, and then they're like, "Wait, where did that I mean, person?" I mean, I got so good at it when I was an undergraduate uh, that I would be sometimes I would leave a party, and I was so good that I was asleep by the time they would call me and realize I had just left. <laughs> I think it's also referred to as an Irish exit. Yes. It, yes. Sorry. It's referred. Usually it is referred to as an Irish exit. Um, but so if I was talking to a friend of mine um, about this not too long ago, and he also mentioned that he is a fan of the Irish exit, that he will also do it. And so we bonded over this and he got me a, he got me an early birthday gift and I have to show this to you sometime. It is a, it's a t-shirt. It's an Irish green t-shirt with, on the front, it is uh, the word, I believe it's pronounced slan, S-L-A-N, which is a, a, a Gaelic word for goodbye. But then on the back, it also has the slogan, now you see me, now you don't. <laughs> and as soon as I opened it, I was like, I, I cannot wait to tell Andrew about this t-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, are you going to wear that to the next party you go to? I think I should wear it to all the parties that I go to. Yeah, and, that's what I was thinking. And then if they don't understand why I did that, then they obviously didn't read the t-shirt. Well, hopefully they don't ever see the back, right? Otherwise they'll see you leaving. <laughs> well, that's true. That's very true. We ready to do this? Yeah. Let's let's get serious and sad. Let's get serious and sad. I'm still going to do the intro, though. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Aw, yeah, everybody. Welcome to the Media Lunch Break, bringing you all of your comic geek and movie news on the time it takes to eat a good sandwich and pound Bill Maher in the face. <laughs> uh, my name is Chris Trebe. Alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Dunn. Say hello, Andrew. Well, hello there. Oh, hello there. So, this has been a weird week. Yeah. It's been one of those weeks uh, and one of those times that we all knew was going to come eventually. Yeah. But... Like when someone that we care for dearly 
actually departs. Uh, we knew it was going to come, but the moment it does, you never were really expecting it. Right. The great Stan Lee, of course, passed away. Um, and there's so much that we can be, can be said about him. We're going to talk a little bit about it today. Obviously, we're going to talk about it for maybe 30 minutes. So much more could be said about him. But let's be honest, there's no way that you can really kind of capture an entire life as large as Stan was yeah. uh, and a, an entire character that Stan Lee was uh, in any sort of time span. So I don't think we should even attempt. We'll just kind of talk a little bit about our feelings and some of the, the cool things that we've found out about Stanley and know about Stanley and kind of just reflect on, on his legacy a little bit. Yeah. Actually, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd actually really like to start with um, something you wrote that I found uh, quite moving actually on, on our Facebook page. Sure. So you, you put it perfectly into words, which is ironic because I think the main thing you say in this is that you can't really put it into words, but that's sort of the only thing you can say about it. You started very abruptly and said, okay, here's the thing. This is the third or fourth attempt to put into words what I feel, but the truth is anything I come up with feels either hollow or meaningless, fake or artificial, because the simple truth is there are no words. The impact that one man had on an entire culture, on the way we view who we are, and the possibilities of what we can make of ourselves became a shared experience that gave us all an unspoken bond can't be summed up in a few characters. He gave characters and worlds that helped a group of people that often feel like outsiders a community to relate to. These were not mere stories. They were allegories and fables of not just who we are, but who we have the possibility to be. So no, I don't think I can write enough words to put something like this into perspective, because as large of a vocabulary as I have at my disposal, only one word really comes to mind. Excelsior. Yeah, so I... Th- I- when I was writing that, I remember thinking about exactly what S- Stanley did for comics, and th- and I think from there you you go into you know he was very much an advocate not only for the characters that he wrote, but also the readers that were reading those uh, the, the the comic books, right and. First and foremost, one of the great things about him is that he had, it's almost um, cliche to do it now in a comic, but he liked to sum up what, both the origin of whatever character he was writing, the origin story very briefly, and then what had just happened in the last last, um, issue or two, uh, because as he put it beautifully, every comic is someone's first comic. And he he was very aware of the community that he was communi- that he was he he had at his disposal, and and I remember thinking that, um, you know everyone always thinks that they're that that these are for kids, and when they started out they were, and that audience grew up with it, um, and we became our own community, um, and before Stanley I think we all felt like outsiders. And then Stanley gave, started to give us characters that started started to make us feel like insiders. And if nothing else, like any good comic creator, he gave us something to talk talk about and something to bond over. Um, and and slowly we found each other. Um, you know, we don't we wouldn't have things like comic cons without someone like Stanley to give those great characters and 
our community something to talk about and something to find uh, other people like us out there and give us something to connect with. Uh, that that uh, that it gave us somewhere to go and a reason. Um, to go out and find other people like us. Because I think for a lot of us, when you start out, um, maybe it's not as true today because it's a little more in popular culture, but I know, I'm sure you probably can connect with this as much as I can. When we were kids, comics were not as cool as doing anything else in school, um, playing sports or whatever. And if you found someone, every and every comic fan has this, the moment they found another comic fan yeah um the w- the moment one nerd discovers another nerd for the first time it's an amazing experience and you don't get there without the work of stanley well and, uh we've we've talked a little bit about how um like i wasn't really a comic book nerd when i was i was super young my my first comic that i read i was i was pretty old i, I might have been in college um, well, I should say my first, the first time I jumped in was in college and then I just never, you know, climbed out of the water, but I, I did purchase single issues as a child because I thought the covers looked cool. And then I'd sort of thumb through them. Right. Like I got a lot of X-Men, I think, um, and I'd thumb through them and I didn't really understand them very well. But the thing that tied me, it's interesting you bring up that thing about you find another comic book nerd, you, you you are in that community because to me it wasn't it wasn't comics but it was a different medium but that we of which we wouldn't have without stan lee it was the the cartoons the 90s cartoons um Mm. i had spider-man i had x-men you know even back then i knew that x-men was a parable for who we can feel where we can feel like when we're at our worst we can feel like the world is against us and the two different ways to deal with that and one is to be standoffish and it's to fight back against the people who you feel like are being mean to you or oppressing you it's to stand your ground and you know speak with an affirmative voice and say no i'm gonna do what i want and you can't control me and i'm gonna fight back and there's a time for that but there's also a time for the professor that's the obviously the magneto way and there's a time for the professor xavier way which is to say, no, no, it's okay, we can all exist here. Like, it's okay for everyone to be themselves at any point. Your life is just as valid as mine, and we can coexist in the same space together and uh, try to win in a more, um, or, or rather try to win over a person's, whatever it is, their acceptance of you uh, in a more, uh, a less... Aggressive. Yeah, less aggressive, yeah, certainly. Yeah. And I remember learning that in the Spider-Man cartoons, just like, I mean, every day when they were on, I came home and, and flipped those on. I watched every single one. Uh, I probably saw the whole thing in a month and then would just watch. I probably saw each episode 50 times. I The other thing that I think important to note, kind of just in a general sense about Stanley, is it's not, you know, he made a, a basically a universe of characters. Yeah. And when it comes to these characters, what set his apart, because I think people see how many characters and they get caught up in the multitude and how diverse the characters are between Spider-Man and X-Men and Black Panther and, and, and kind of the wide variety that, that he produced. But I think the, the more important thing that he did for the art form itself is that he changed what a hero, what a central character will be. If you look at 
the popular heroes before Stan Lee came in. Um, you have people like, you know, Superman and Batman, um, which are great characters, but they're muscle men. They're what, uh, you know, again, when kids were, when it was, these things were written primarily just for children. Um, these are heroes that are showing what you could potentially grow up to be if you really wanted to. Um, it was something, it was giving you something to aspire to be uh, in your future. And that's why they needed things like little, like Robin or or Bucky sidekicks that were more age oriented towards the fans to give you a pl- a way in towards those characters. But when Stan Lee came in and he created something like Spider Man, that that then makes you the the hero. It makes the fan that is reading the book look at that and go. That isn't someone I could I could potentially be in my future. That's someone I I am now. Because um, if you look at who Peter Parker was when he started out, he was a nerd. He was a nerd just like the comics fans were. Um, Stanley created a hero based around the fan base, which is brilliant. Um, but he created a, a a nerd. He wasn't popular. He longed after the pretty girl in school. Um, he had acne. He had troubles. He wasn't. Um, he was super smart, but he wasn't athletic. He wasn't strong. He wasn't, you know, suave and or sophisticated in any way. He was a normal person, and he was. I'm gonna bet out the the type of person that a lot of the people reading the comics felt like they were. And so he created then a character that you could look at and go, oh, I don't. That's not someone I have to aspire to be. That's someone I am right now. And with all his problems, he's a hero. So there's no reason I have to wait. There's no reason I have to build myself up into a person to be heroic. I can do it right now. I can start right this moment. I can be the person that I'm reading about right now. I'm perfectly fine exactly who I am in this moment. And I can be my fullest potential in this moment. Um, and it changed that that changed comics that gave what is essentially a two dimensional art form, a third dimension um, because he made them soap operas and everyone had tights and superpowers and explosions and action and and things like that. But this is a soap opera. This is Peter Parker, um, you know, trying to get Mary Jane and something happens. This is uh, him trying to take care of aunt May and something happens in the middle of it. And he has to go, this, the Spider-Man stories happen around whatever is going on in Peter Parker's life, not the other way around. Um, the Fantastic Four is about a family, and things happen to this family, and then they have to go be the Fantastic Four. But the, fa- the action of the Fantastic Four interrupts the family dynamic that is the Fantastic Four. That was something that was, like I said, that didn't happen before. Everything else the hero things came first before Stanley and after Stanley, the hero things came second. Um, and he realized that, that if you change that dynamic, everyone feels for it. Everyone understands exactly what is going on in the story instantly because everyone has a mother or father figure, um, or someone that they love, uh, or someone that they want to be loved by and how you can try and, you know, live your life and things and life happens to you and things interrupt that. Uh, 
and if you base the story after that, then everyone understands what's going on. Um, but it was it was Stanley that really started that, that you get this third dimension added to comics. And I think that people sometimes will miss that in talking about the legacy. And they just get caught up in how many characters that he created and not what he did with them. Sure. Not the the depth of those characters. You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I was at work when I found out he, when he passed away. And uh, as I usually am when a celebrity does, and it's almost always the same. It's always like, oh, no, everyone Prince died. And everyone sort of is like, oh, that's a shame. And then goes back to work. And it's funny because I, I heard that he had passed and I was sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's what happens. And it didn't really affect me. Yeah. And people kept coming over to me. I, I think two or three different people at work were like, Hey, I just want to check in. Are you doing all right? <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Yeah, I didn't know the guy. You know, like I never met him. Right. And and it didn't even really occur to me. Like you know, he hadn't created a character since like 1972 or something. So it's not like, it's not like you know, he died and we were like, Ah, oh, we were so close to getting so many more. Yeah. You know, robbed of so many potential stories. Robbed of so many characters. Why do the good yeah. always die so young? Yeah, really. <laughs> and uh, but then I I started listening to. Um, uh, Kevin Smith talk about Stanley, and he had a ton of great stories. Yes, but one of the things that really got him choked up, and it started making me a little emotional too, was he was talking about how he started thinking about like Stan Lee's connection uh, between Kevin Smith and his father, and how for him it was like my dad used to read these comics, and he would he was like, hey hey Kev, come in here, I want to I want to give you something. And it was like his first comic book, and he was like, and even once the Marvel movies came out. Like, that was something, he was like, that's something me and my dad always did. Like, we went to every single movie. Right. And it got me thinking about how I did that with my mom. Right. And I think the last movie I saw with her before she passed away was uh, the first Avengers movie. Right. And we watched all of Phase 1 together in theaters, you know. So, that was an interesting thing that uh, I was like, oh, there is something there. I I, I, I was kind of the same way I, I had heard about it at work. And I was kind of like you. Uh, you know, I was like, ah, oh, that sucks. But like I said in the intro, it is one of those things where you know it's you know it's coming. The guy was ninety five. I was gonna say he he could have died the day we both found out about him. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it, you know it, it was like he's ninety five. You know it's gonna come, but the day it actually happens, you're like, wow, I can't believe we now live in this. You know, there was first there was, and now we have to live forever without, and. So, like I said, just like you, it was, I was like, oh, that sucks, but, like, you know, it's not unexpected. And then the more I was thinking yeah, about we, it. We've been preparing for this for 30 for years. For 30 years, yeah. <laughs> and then the more I was thinking about it, it, it started to get to me, um, again, because of you, there is an underlining emotional experience that we have been having for 30 years with this guy. Yeah. That has been unspoken that he is just this, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I once heard George Lucas describe this way as well um, when it comes to Star Wars fans. And it's just as true, if not more true with Stan Lee, he felt like your, your grandfather, even if you don't have a grandfather, he felt like your grandfather because he's taking you and he's quietly just kind of sitting you on his knee and he's telling you a story. And he's, he's not just entertaining you, but he's, he's taking you on this journey and he's always been welcoming you into this story. And he's always been there. He's just always been there. He's just always been prevalent. And 
whether it's a story with Tony Stark or with Peter Parker or Black Panther or the Fantastic Four, or it's just a story about Jack Kirby, or it's a story about making the Marvel movies, or it's he was just he was a storyteller. He wasn't he was a character unto himself, and he was an entity unto himself that you just kind of knew was there that was just present in your life even when you weren't consciously aware of it well and and even in general it's it's i was just thinking about this earlier today when i was thinking about what to say on this episode is that uh and and this sounds like a generic thing but it's really hard to imagine a life without his musings right that i mean it's it's hard to imagine not having any comic books. It's hard to imagine not watching the television I watched as a kid. It's hard to imagine what I would be doing with my girlfriend instead of watching the Netflix Marvel shows every night. It's hard to imagine ha- not seeing three quarters of the movies that I've seen over the past 10 years. Uh, right. And it's hard to imagine even even little things like going into a department store and not seeing tons of Marvel stuff or going to Times Square and not seeing people, uh, just 30 people dressed as Iron Man and the Hulk. You know, right. tr- trying to get people to take pictures with them to ask for donations. Um, it, his his thumbprint is literally everywhere. Right. Even even like the good and the bad. Like there's there was. Um, we'll talk about this in a, in uh, pretty soon. But there was a Captain America movie in 1990 that uh, yes. was horrendous. Uh, but that was him, good and bad. He he even um, I actually just watched a, a a video an interview with him where he talked about. The one, the one Marvel movie that he didn't like, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. But I re- Fantastic Four. It wasn't, but it was. It was one. It might have been like that Captain America movie or something. But it was. It was something that like he didn't like it because. Oh, it was a. It was a, a Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Uh, I think in in another country. Okay. And he said he just didn't like it because. It, they they made it a Spider-Man movie and not a Peter Parker, Parker movie. movie. Yeah. And I was like, that's what it is, isn't it? And and even going to DC, um, like I wonder if we would have the DC universe that we have, not the DCE universe, but even the DC universe that we have now of all of their stuff without Stanley. Because you, you look at something like Batman the Animated Series, right. where Kevin Conroy, who voiced Batman, said that it was his idea to make not only different, but that Batman is the alter ego and right. Bruce Wayne is the mask. Right. Yeah, no uh, you and don't. And that's a very interesting thing. No, I think you're right. And I think that even the characters this is this is how prevalent his impact was. Even the characters that were created before he came onto the scene were affected and everyone kind of looked at how successful he was at employing this um at and making it a Peter Parker story instead of a Spider-Man story. And they all had to go. Well, we got to reframe this now. Everything has to get has to change. And that didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually. But eventually, everyone came to that way of thinking: of you can't make this just a a you know a Batman story. There has to be a Bruce, or excuse me, that's probably not the best example because you just like you said. But Batman has to be the main person and then Bruce Wayne is the alter ego. And so you have to kind of reverse things. Uh, You can't make it just a Superman story. You have to make it a Clark Kent story and his relationship with Lois and somewhere in the middle, something as some action piece has to happen to interrupt his life. 
and then he has to go off and be Superman while dealing with his problems. Um, that's that's where the real meat of the story is. Everything, even though Superman came out, you know, years before Stanley even came onto the scene, we have those characters well, and the storylines that we get now. And the way that they do them now, because Stanley went, no, what you really right. need to do I, I was going to say, I've, I've, I went back recently. I was in a show where I had to play a comic book nerd. It was a real stretch, but uh, they had me do it. And I, I had to, um, like, there's this part where I get into an argument with another comic book nerd about what's the best quote from a comic book. And then, like, I pull one out of my coat or whatever. So I was like, okay, it takes, and it takes place in, like, Vietnam. Right. The Vietnam War. So I was like, okay, I got to find some comics from, like, before, and it's early in the Vietnam War. So before, like, 1964 or something. And I started looking for stuff, and I found World's Finest. And uh, I found some of those for cheap. And I, I grabbed a bunch, and I started thumbing through them. And I was like, man, these are terrible. Yeah, they do not age well. There's like a guy robbing a bank and Superman just shows up. He punches the guys in the face. He gives back the money and says another job well done and like floats away. And that's the story. Right. Um, there is no Clark Kent. Right. Like there, there is no flaw. There's right. no difficulty. It's just a dude who always saves the day and is always perfect and never has any problems. And it's, it's not interesting. Yeah, it's definitely that what we have now, no matter, it doesn't matter who you're reading. It doesn't matter what publisher you're into. Does matter what characters you love stanley has touched them in some sort of way there that impact is there even if you can't see it directly it's there it's there because the writers that are writing that comic were influenced by stanley it's there because the artist and even stuff you look at stuff like um look at kevin smith and how uh uh you know he was hugely influenced by you know not only the things we have and we see but the people we have because they had him. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. The, the, you know, a lot of the things that you love are impacted by him because the people that are making the things that you love were impacted by him. So it's one of those, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that's going to, he is one of those people that it's going to reverberate long after he's gone, not only because his creations stay there, but because his impact. And maybe that's even the, the greater tribute to him. It's not just his creations that are going to stay on long, bef- long after him, but the impact he had is going. You're going to see it reverberate through so many different art forms for generations to come, because it just builds on from here. Uh, and you can't, you can't ask for anything better than that. All right, I want to talk to you about Bill Maher. Yes, let's get into this. Because. <laughs> He went on this nasty rant. I mean, we're sort of playing directly into his hand, I think, right. because this is exactly what he wants. But it's 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 impossible to avoid it. Sure. He went on this crazy rant, I think, on his show that no one watches. And I wanted to... Um... It was on his blog. Oh, okay. It was the show's blog. Sorry, it was on his blog that no one reads. Yeah. And I wanted to put a couple quotes uh, from it. I don't want to read the whole thing because it was a crazy long rant. But he, right. he described Stan Lee as, quote, a man who inspired millions to, I don't know, watch a movie, I guess, quote. Right. Uh, and he says, uh, the assumption everyone had back then, he's talking about when he was a kid, was both the adults and the kids, was that comics were for kids. And when you grew up, you moved on to big boy books without the pictures. And he goes on to say... Uh, I'm not saying this is this is the real kick for me. I'm not saying we've necessarily gotten stupider, but I don't think it's a huge stretch to suggest that Donald Trump could only get elected in a country that thinks comic books are important. What do you have to say about that, Christopher Treble? 
So there is one line in this entire thing that I found that, that kind of jumped out at me when I first read this. Okay. This is, this is also, now I have nothing against comic books. I read them now and then when I was a kid and I was all out of Hardy Boys, right? Now here's where this all falls apart for me. Okay. And this is where at first I was angry and then I actually just didn't care and was kind of ambivalent to it. I read them now and then when I was a kid. So basically what you're telling me is that you have not actually gotten involved in this art form for decades. Right. So you don't know what this is anymore. If you actually, uh, I'm going to correct you there because he does say I read them now and then as a kid, but I think he's just using that as a talking point because later he tries to defend himself. He's on Larry King Live uh, and he said, or Larry King Now is the show. Yeah. And he says he he's never even read a comic book at all. Right. So um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he's never even done it. Right. And so the problem is even even giving him the benefit of the doubt that he read one or two when he was a kid. Right. You and I have even discussed that a lot of those don't age well. And they were <laughs> and they were written for kids back then. Yeah. He's not wrong in what he was saying in that instance. They were written you for were kids. You were a real back weirdo. Then. You were kind of like a brony. Like my little pony is for kids, you know? Like uh, right. you know, you were you were that kind of ostracized person. Not that I would personally attack or ostracize anyone for anything that they like, but that's how the public viewed people right. like that because it was it was for babies. <laughs> right. It was well and even, listen, when comic books first came out in the 30s, they literally were written for kids. Yeah. That's all they were marketed to. Yeah. And, and that's fine. But what you're telling me is then you then checked out of it for decades and have not seen the, the progression of what it has become. Yeah. Um, and so you don't actually know what you're talking about. Right. You're just kind of spouting your mouth off because you think you tangentially have an idea of what it is. And you're then also assuming... That in the, I don't know, 40 years since you've read a comic book, um, that it is somehow frozen in time and not changed one iota, which makes no sense whatsoever. As someone who works in a medium that you can literally track, i.e. television, where you can literally track the progression of it and how it's um, gotten sophisticated over the years. Sure. I don't understand how you would assume that some other uh, uh, medium would just magically stay frozen in time in some sort of like uh, odd, in an oddly ironic twist in some sort of like Captain America like stasis. Oh, I'm surprised you uh, went that way. I, I thought you were going to go with the um, Phantom Zone or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 just absurd, and and that's what I mean. When I first read it, I was like. I was enraged as everyone else. And then I hit that line and that line kind of sunk into me. And it reminded me, I've heard stories of, uh, I remember a professor of mine in college was telling me how he was in a show and where a lot of the female characters were, were costumed to be scantily clad. Okay. And word got out around campus that this was so, and, and so people started boycotting the show. Right. And they started actually boycotting the show and talking against it and encouraging people in the student population not to go see the show. And he was in a class where one of the professors were one of those people. Uh, and one of the professors in the class actually said to not go see this show. Oh. And my professor, who was a student at the time, 
uh, put his hand up and said, "Let me. have you seen the show? And he said, no, I'm not going to go see it. So he goes, well, let me get this straight. So you're saying that you are, you are offended by something and that it is offensive and people shouldn't see it, but you don't actually know what it is. And that's what Bill Maher is essentially doing here. He's saying that these things are dumb and they're for children, but he doesn't know. Yeah. He has no way of knowing. He hasn't tried it yet. If he had said, listen, I, you know, I read comics as a kid a lot and I was really into it. And then I grew out of it. Um, I, I would have more respect for him. If someone, if someone like Jeff Johns came out and said, listen, I love Stanley. You love Stanley. But at the end of the day, these are comic books and not a, a world event. I would have more respect for right. it. Because Jeff Johns know what he's talking about. He he writes comics. Right. He reads comics. It's his he life. knows what the medium is today. Um, if he went, these are not great works of literature. They shouldn't be viewed this way. I know. I'm one of the ones writing them. I respect that argument. That's a fair argument to make. And even the points that Bill Maher makes are fair points to make. That being said, they're coming from the wrong person. Yeah, I, I, because he doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, maybe I just I think you've got some really good points in there, including one you only lightly touched on, which is that, yeah, you're familiar with comic books from 75 years ago. What? How would you feel if you were like if some if you told someone that you were, you know, a t- television host, and they were like TV, <laughs> like what that black and white stuff where like. You know, right. a guy gets exactly. out. And, oh, you mean with un- Uncle Milty? Yeah, exactly. Does a song and dance and then goes back behind the curtain on the TV. You know, right. like uh, you mean that thing that like you got to hit with your hand and move the, the rabbit ear antenna. You know, does anyone even still watch that? Yeah. If you said I have a talk show and I said, oh, are you like Ed Sullivan? What, yeah. what yeah, would yeah. you say? Um, I disagree, though, that it depends on who's saying it. And that if Jeff John, if Jeff Johns came out right now and said, yeah, you know, this stuff really isn't that important. I'd be like, go back in your fucking hole and <laughs> write me some more stuff. Well, <laughs> I respect if people disagree with that. What I'm just saying is that if you're going to make an listen there, I I like to think that there is room in this world for all arguments. However, I don't. What I don't stand for is for people. Well, except for certain extreme things. <laughs> um, but I, I. However, what I don't stand for is um, if someone's going to make an argument that is completely that, and prove themselves to be completely uneducated about the subject that they're talking about, which is what Bill Maher does. Right, right. Jeff Johns. What I'm saying is Jeff Johns said the same thing that Bill Maher did. I would at least listen to it. And consider no, because Jeff Johns. Let me let me let me summarize what, what you're about. saying. What you're saying is that uh, what Bill Maher did was the equivalent of someone posting a Facebook article, uh, and then Bill Maher commenting with, "Okay, so I didn't read the article, but here's my opinion." Exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I, I get you. I get what you're saying. I I my my main takeaway as well was um, he doesn't explain why. Right. Right. All he says is that when when I was a kid. Um, and I posted on Twitter today, uh, old man yells at cloud, extra, extra, read all about it. Um, but when I was a kid, you know, we knew these were for kids. And when you grew up, you became an adult. But the only reason he gives why that occurs is because it has pictures. <laughs> he says you you moved on up to big boy books right. without pictures when you grew up. And to me, I'm like, what's the real issue? Like, I want to sit down and ask this dude, like, is it? pictures that right. pictures can't be art photography can't be art you know da vinci who 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 the fuck was that 
or once again it, you also work in a medium that is literally nothing but pictures right exactly moving pictures well that's that was the other point i was going to make is that um moving pictures well i was going to ask is it that you're mixing mediums like say a written script with uh pictures that shift from one picture to the other which is television <laughs> right right so what what is it is it that you don't don't like photography you don't like the mixture of of dialogue and photography or or uh, artistry uh what what exactly is it about this that and and it's strange to me to say that to hear that any single thing any genre uh can be disregarded like i used to have this argument with someone in high school who said oh i don't like television or no no it wasn't even that that's what i compared it to it was he would say i don't like anime and i get like you come from a place that's like, I just never got into it. Right. Like I, I don't know where to start. Uh, I don't have the time to start. Even if I did know where to start, you know, there's so much stuff. Um, but this was a guy who was just like, no, nah, I watched it. I don't like it. And to me, I would always say like, I wasn't even that big of an anime person, but I was like, it's like saying I don't like television or I don't like books or I don't like movies. Right. It, it, it has genres within the genre. Like if you don't like right. something, there's another one, you know, that's better or different or more to your there's, taste. So you can go somewhere else for, yeah, you right. can find something that, there's a thousand channels out and, there. And flip around with for comics a while. as well, like the artist style is all different. There's a great Brian Michael Bendis uh, Deadpool comic, and I forget which one it is, uh, but there's right. a, it's a trade paperback that the entire thing is written in the way that he sees. Right. And so people are very splotchy. Um, as people are moving, they're brighter colors because he can hear them so loudly. Uh, when they're standing still, they're not so bright. And it's really interesting to, to read and to right. look at. And it's beautiful. It's artwork. Yeah. There's an original thought that, yeah, it's it's one of those, you're right. You know, it's too big of a thing to try and pin down to just go, well, no, none of it's good. And you're like, do you, I don't think yeah. you quite understand how big this is. And I don't mean big, like a money juggernaut big. I'm saying, I don't think you understand how wide, how wide, uh, how wide of a scope you're, you're chucking out here. Um, this is no longer just that. Cause I, I would assume, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume with this comment, he's talking about superhero comics. That's fine. Yeah. If you don't, you're not into the, the capes and the tights fine although he doesn't clarify right he doesn't clarify (laughs) right but that's what i'm saying but but at the same time there are so many other different you know again this is a an art form now that has expanded itself into finding tales and and trying to adapt it so that there's a reason that you do it in this art form right you know that that's amazing you know there is i was just telling somebody the other day that there's a graphic novel about Brian Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles. And he goes, I can't believe that that's a comic book. And the idea is that it's interesting because why would that story be told in this form as opposed to a movie or something else? And I'm sure the the, the writer had a reason that he wanted to do it in this form because this is an art form and there's a way that you can tell a story this way. I, I have two uh, graphic novels. One is a biography of Richard Feynman, the uh, the scientist, and one is the biography of Andre the Giant. Right. And there's no reason that you can't tell those stories in this way. And there's a reason why I mean, you tell Andre the Giant is is 
almost necessary for it. Like Andre the Giant, I mean, he could have been a superhero. Right. You know? Like he looked like one. Uh, Lord knows he was taller than one. He was bigger than one. Uh, and it's really interesting to see a representation of him being able to do the motions that he did in the ring right. as well as see a sentimental side that they right. probably couldn't really do in a movie or a cartoon. And you certainly couldn't do in a, in a regular novel or a, a biography. Yeah. So... Yeah, let's. Not, I'm I'm done talking about Bill Maher and his blowhard. Whatever. All right, I I do want to do a couple more things. It's looking like we're gonna end up doing this as an episode. So okay. I did quickly want to go over a few stories of Stanley. We yeah, actually, let's do um, it. I think our first YouTube video is talking about Stanley, and yes. uh, I go over I think most of these here, but uh, not in so much depth. So the the very first one I want to mention is uh, that when Stanley was 17 years old, the way he got started, he he was still in high school and he needed a job. Uh, and he found one as an intern. He referred to himself as a gopher, uh, bringing coffee, sweeping up and stuff like that. Uh, and he, he was hired at a, com- a small comic company and he was making $10 a week, give or take. He once in an interview to nail down exactly what people thought of comics at the time. He says, I didn't know it was a comic book company. I thought it was a real publishing company. And uh, after everyone above him resigned, the publisher... <laughs> Uh, like the, the writer walked out, the, the like head of the department walked out. He came in one day and he was the only one there and no one came in. Uh, and he ended up calling the publisher and the publisher was like, ah, oh, crap. Uh, I guess they all resigned and they didn't tell me. Well, I'll tell you what, just, um, stay in your seat. If anyone's phones ring, <laughs> just run to that office and answer the phone. You know, if we get any letters, try to respond back. I, I, I'm going to find replacements for all these people. Just, just hang in there, hold down the fort. But they never found a replacement. And there's a direct line from that moment when this 17-year-old kid became the editor, writer, and art director of a comic book company. Right. Climbed his way into, which eventually, the company eventually became Marvel Comics. And uh, started writing stories that were just as inspirational as his own life. Right. At one point, it's kind of great because there is a moment there where, you know, people always think of Stanley as as all of Marvel comics, but there was literally a point there where Stanley was the only person at Marvel comics, essentially. Yeah. Um, which is, is fantastic. There's also the story of his, if I'm going to cut it, I'm probably stealing one of yours, but there's also the story of when he was writing comics, he was kind of fed up. He had, he'd been an aspiring novelist and he, he was doing this kind of to make ends meet. And he was kind of fed up with, with writing whatever they were making him write at the time. And he, his wife, he was talking to his wife and he said, you know, I'm probably going to get fired at some point for doing this. And I really can't stand it anyway. And she goes, well, if you're going to get fired, then why don't you just write whatever you want to write and at least enjoy it? Because if you're going to get fired for doing something you hate, you might as well get fired for doing something you love and just write whatever you want. And when they fire you, you fire you. And, that is when he created the Fantastic Four. That's when he created Spider-Man. He went on to create all his best characters from the moment his wife said, well, if you're going to get fired, just go ahead and write whatever the hell you want. And whatever the hell he wanted were the greatest comic characters to, to really 
ever come out of comics, which is, I think, just a fantastic. You did butcher it a little bit, but but you mostly got it right. It, it started with him telling his boss, come on, can't we write something with some more character depth? Right. I really want to write like I, I want to show what these people are like at home. And his boss was like, absolutely not. Look, we know what sells, Stan. We know that people like the punch in the face of the bad guy and we want the perfect people. We want to see the heroes that would save us and that we think are out there who are going to protect us, you know, during the war or whatever. And he was like, ah, right. And it was actually that he was going to quit and he was planning on quitting like the next day. And she said, well, his wife, Joan, said, you know, why don't you submit what you want to submit? And if they fire you for it because it's so bad and it does so poorly, then you were going to quit anyway and you can go to your next job. And yeah, you're right. That comic was the Fantastic Four and it sold four times as much as their previous bestseller, right. four times as many copies. So uh, it ended up being a huge hit, and his his uh, publisher ended up ended up coming to him and being like, "I don't know what this is, but I need more of it right now, as fast as you can." It's it's just amazing. I, the, the thing I love about that is that when you took the reins off of him, yeah, that's when he created the best character. Yeah, you opened the gate and let him into the ring, and and ju- and he just uh, you, yeah, you let him go wild, and that's when he creates his best stuff. Um, and that's not always the case. Sometimes with a lot of great artists, you have to kind of rein them back a little bit. Yeah him it's like you know he was itching to do this stuff and as soon as they let him do just whatever just took all the reins off of him he creates again the greatest characters ever to come out of the entire medium yeah for me the moral of that story uh there's two uh one of them is to risk and take as many chances as you can and to write the comic you want to write and the other one is to always look for guidance in the people you trust right yeah surround yourself with with you don't have to surround yourself with a lot of people surround yourself with a few people but smart people smarter than you (laughs) yeah yeah he also uh he doesn't get enough uh credit for this but he he basically abolished the comics code authority (laughs) um yes i I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, exact story but they had uh, they had these crazy rules. So back in the day, um, the Comics Code Authority, you know, reigned tyrannously over over comics. You had to get this stamp put on the cover of every single comic that was that was published and sold to the public. And uh, if you were able to get this stamp from the CCA, as it was known, then uh, it meant that you know your kid would be safe reading this comic, and that his mind, little Timmy's mind, wasn't going to get warped by looking at some some creepy creepy pictures. But they had crazy rules, right? Some of the problems they had were uh, no comics magazine shall include the word horror or terror in the title. Divorce shall not be treated humorously nor represented as desirable. And uh, scenes dealing with vampires, vampirism, uh, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Uh, And like a million other things that were just ridiculous. So Stan decided he wanted to write he was artistic director at marvel comics at the time and he said you know what we're gonna do we're, we're gonna g- write that cannibalism comic <laughs> we've all been itching for <laughs> we're gonna write that one where um the werewolf vampire gets divorced it's gonna be called the terror of the horror of the werewolf vampire divorce <laughs> but he he decides we're gonna we're gonna write a, a, a comic that that about drug addiction drug addiction had been going crazy across america for a little while now it was 1971 and people were just there was there was nothing to tell kids this is what it is this is how to handle it so what are we going to do 
well, we have a voice directly to children and to children who are the age that this pertains to, young adults. So we're going we're gonna to do our best to talk about this. So in the Spider-Man comic, Norman Osborn creates a crazy drug and they start selling it on the street. It's a lot like the first season of Daredevil. And uh, they start selling these drugs out and Spy- Spider-Man gets a spider- spidey sense is going off. Uh, this dude near him is about to jump off a building because he got too high off this weird drug and is just seeing things and he falls off the roof and Spider-Man saves the day. He stays with the guy until he comes down and then eventually puts Norman Osborn in his place and ends this drug ring for good. They submit it to the comics code authority and the, the, the CCA totally shoots it down. They say, absolutely not. You can't have drugs in a comic book. And Stanley's like, come on, we're, we're talking about how bad they are, right? Like that's the whole thing. So, uh, Stanley has a night to think he has a sleepless night. He's rolling it over in his head. He comes in the next day and he, he calls an emergency meeting and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to publish it and we're not going to get the approval of the CCA. And people lost their minds. The, the artists, the writers, everyone started looking for work somewhere else. They were like, Lee's lost his mind. We're never going to sell this. This is going to tank the company because people are going to be like, oh, the CCA doesn't even approve of this. You know, like, uh, why would anyone want to buy this if, if it's not safe to read? So, uh, does super well, like better than most of their comics usually do. And it did that way because no one even fucking noticed the seal wasn't on it. Yeah. And from that day on, they were like, holy shit, we can do anything. And DC even was like, uh, I remember, I don't remember who it was, but one of the, the, the big top dogs, uh, at that time in DC, like burst into the publisher's office and was like, you're not going to believe this, but Marvel just, just, uh, published this comic that didn't get the approval of the CCA and it's all about drugs. And that's when they were able to write a very, very famous comic of, uh, in the DC universe of Green Lantern and Green Arrow, I think. Yes. Uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's gr- uh, Green, uh, Arrow's Green Arrow sidekick and, is a, it becomes a Yeah, the Red now. Arrow, I think, like was, was shooting up or something. Yes. And that inspired them to do that. Yeah. So uh, we wouldn't have had that without Stanley either. And it turned out, uh, and they didn't know this, we didn't find this out until years later. The CCA, as it was known... There was no rule. There was no. no law that said you had to follow the CCA. It wasn't a government establishment. It's a, it was a self-governing body. It was actually instituted. The, the comics companies got together because the, they were afraid that the government was eventually going to enforce something like this through the government and make it some sort of a law. And so they said, well, why don't we just create our own body and govern ourselves? Will that be acceptable? And the government was like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And so they kind of forgot that it was a self-governing thing well, and that they didn't need to actually do it. Right. But also what they found out later was that it was just one old woman. (laughs) Not a lot of people know this. No. It was a woman in her house and people would send her comics and she would leaf through them, look for things that would not be suitable and then type an email back on her typewriter and mail it back. That's amazing. I say type also, an email. You, uh, you type just a said letter. type an email. Yes. That's amazing. It was I had an email. No idea she was, she, she was, she was, they were very advanced over at the CCA. Right. That's, inc- that, that I actually had no idea. That's incredible. Yeah. And the CCA was still around until pretty recently, like the early thousands. Yeah. It's, it was still going on. That's amazing. I did not but it know was, that. But it was her still. Like it was still just that woman. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how uh, Stanley single-handedly took down that crazy that old one woman. old woman. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, when you paint it in that light. <laughs> Who really is the good guy in this story? Yeah, really. So Stanley, innovator, genius, old woman defeater. Yeah, I mean, we do see a clip of Brie Larson punching an old woman in the face in the Captain Marvel trailer, so it sort of rings true. Well, that's true. the best tribute they could give Stanley possible. <laughs> That I think we should I think we should just about wrap it up there because we're about yeah, I think we're good. about this... at the hour mark I think enough said so with that uh, that's it that's we're just gonna end the episode then yeah right yes okay cool I don't think we need to do anything else there's no, not usually no. there's nothing else yeah we usually so. just sort of peter out right kind of like we're we're doing now yeah yeah. Yeah. You can tell the episode is over because my wife has gotten home and is now just going to go ahead and just do whatever because she's like, this is my house now, damn it. Well, I, I hope she doesn't start cleaning the dishes or cooking or whatever she was doing in the Patreon feed that we made. In her defense, we I did not know we were going to record that type of episode when she was doing it. Um, yeah. That was more my fault than anything else. Oh, hey, by the way, Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Yeah. Andrew. Yes. Hey, Andrew. What? What is it? Where can they find us? Well, they can find us on Twitter.com, where our handle is at Media Lunch Break. They can find us on Facebook.com, on YouTube. You can check out our video on Stanley there. It goes over, I think, all the things we just talked about, but that's only about half of the video. It goes through his whole biography. Uh, you can also listen to us on iTunes, on Google Play Music, on SoundCloud, on Spotify now. You can give us a little bit of money on Patreon.com slash The Media Lunch Break. Hi, Julie. <laughs> if you're listening, Hi, Julie. it's our, our boss, our only patron. You can also go to our website at www.themedialunchbreak.com or you can send us an email at themedialunchbreak at gmail.com. That was, was that nine or was that ten? That was ten. All right, fair enough. Enough said. You just got them down so quick, it's, it's hard to I count know, them all. I know, I remembered this time. You're a professional like that. We, I know, we're, I wish we were on Farmers Only still, but alas, it's, it's, not, it's not so. All right, but when we need to get that integral 15th one, it's coming back. See, I was going to say, if we want 20, we could just sign up for 10 more dating sites. <laughs> Already done. <laughs> All right, that's it. We did another thing. Yeah. It, we, hey, Chris, what? give me your best Excelsior. All right. <clears throat> it's got to come from the diaphragm. Ready? Excel Don't wake up your son. I was just in the middle of it. You give me your best no, you, Excelsior. No, you didn't do it. Alright, hold on. Here we go. Ready? Excelsior! That was pretty good. That was alright. I feel like I could have done better. <laughs> alright, enough said. <laughs>